Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 138 with Kiki Aranita. Like nobody, nobody really tells you this, that like the customers at food trucks are going to be really, really nice. The customers at restaurants, there's like a learning curve for the customers to get to know you and manage their expectations with what you're serving, especially if it's an unfamiliar cuisine to them. I'm very happy to report that with the restaurant, we did end up winning a lot of customers over, but with the food truck, like you don't have to win any, anybody over. They're just like so delighted, like with, with the fact that you exist and they have stumbled upon you. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spear. On the show, I have conversations with culinary entrepreneurs and people in the food and beverage industry who took a different route. They're caterers, research chefs, personal chefs, cookbook authors, food truckers, farmers, cottage bakers, and all sorts of culinary renegades. I myself fall into the personal chef category as I started my own personal chef business, Perfect Little Bites, 11 years ago. And while I started working in kitchens in the early 90s, I've literally never worked in a restaurant. This week, my guest is Philadelphia chef Kiki Aranita. You might know her from her Poi Dog food truck and subsequent restaurant of the same name. Unfortunately, due to the COVID pandemic, she had to shut down her restaurant. But Poi Dog has returned in the form of a line of bottled condiments, including guava katsu sauce and chili pepa water. We talk about the evolution of her business, deciding to close the restaurant, and what it was like to start a consumer packaged goods product line. Kiki was raised in both Hong Kong and Hawaii, so I really want to talk to her about her food experiences growing up and why she chose to cook professionally. She also does a lot of food writing and recipe development for commercial brands. I asked her for some of her tips for those looking to start working with brands. And we also talked about her hobby of working with yarn, which has evolved from making dog sweaters to pieces that represent packaged food goods such as Pocky and Takis. Wow, that's a mouthful. And now there's an exhibition of that work that can currently be found in the Philadelphia International Airport until June of 2022. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you love it, please share it. Let everyone know about the podcast. The show will be coming up right after word from this week's sponsor. The COVID pandemic has clearly redefined the world of dining. Despite over 110,000 restaurants closing around the country, people still want the ambiance and social connectivity that is so critical to the dining experience. Over the past 27 years, the world of the personal chef has grown in importance to fulfill those dining needs. While the pandemic certainly upended the restaurant experience, it provided an avenue for personal chefs to close that dining gap. Central to all of that is the United States Personal Chef Association. Representing nearly a 1,000 chefs around the U.S. and Canada, and even Italy, USPCA provides a strategic backbone for those chefs that includes liability insurance, training, communications, certification, and more. One of the big upcoming events for USPCA is their annual conference scheduled July 7th to 10th at the Hyatt Regency in Sarasota, Florida. Featuring a host of speakers and classes, the conference is a way for chefs to hone their skills and network with like-minded business people. 
For those who supply the industry, it's a chance to reach not just the decision makers, but the actual buyers of products. This will be their first time back following the COVID lockdowns, and chefs are anxious to connect. For more info about the USPCA, how to join, and how to attend their conference, go to USPCA.com. As always, all the info will be linked up in the show notes. And now, on with the show. Thanks so much, and have a great day. Hey, Kiki, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad we could catch up. I can't wait to share your story with everyone. If it wasn't for COVID, I would have made it up to Philly by now. I've uh, my sh- my show's on the verge of becoming the Philly Chefs Without Restaurants show at this point. I think you're probably <laughs> like the twelfth chef from Philly or so that I've had on. So, how long have you been in Philly? About ten years, which is a long time. It's like the longest. It was much longer than I expected to spend here, but um, I like it here. Well, I guess, how did you end up in Philly? Let's kind of start there. And then we can kind of work backwards. Yeah. So I lived in New York. Um, I went to NYU and then I went to grad school in New York. Um, And then I was switching grad programs. Like I wanted to change my field of study. Um, I was previously in comparative literature with um, Renaissance Italian literature. My Italian stinks. So I knew that I wouldn't be able to get very far in graduate school with my crappy Italian. Um, however, my reading and writing of my reading and writing comprehension of Italian is not terrible. Um, but I also know knew that I wanted to get more into ancient stuff. So I um, switched PhD programs um, to one here um, right outside of Philly at Bryn Mawr College, and it was in classics. Wow! So not a food background. Not a food background at all. I just happen to come from two cultures where that are very, very rich um, with different food traditions um, that are extremely international have and have been so for many generations um, from Hawaii and from Hong Kong. So I was raised very much uh, by people who are absolutely, completely obsessed with food. Where were you raised? Were you raised in Hawaii? In Hawaii and Hong Kong. Oh, both. Yeah. So we're back and forth um, growing up. Now, did you love that? Like, what was your childhood like? Did you enjoy living there? I mean, those seem like places that are really exciting. I've never been to either. Um, I mean, the places are really wonderful. Like, I'm really proud to be from each place and both places. Um, But I mean, it was still my childhood filled with like, you know, childhood traumas and being a kid and trying to figure things out. So it was, I mean, I, I don't think it was too extraordinary a childhood. It was just flung across the world in two different places. You mentioned both places having rich, I guess, like food cultures, food heritage. Did you have a love of food when you were a kid growing up? Like, was your family really into food? What are your fond memories of your childhood as it relates to food, I guess? Um, both sides of the family are obsessed with eating out. I don't necessarily come from a family of cooks. In fact, like, they're very, very surprised that I have ever cooked for people. They're still, both sides are still very confused by this path that I found myself down. On the Hawaii side, a lot of my family members are hunters and fishermen. So they like to procure food and they know the basics of like, you know, cleaning a fish and grilling it. Um, But they're really, really passionate about the businesses that provide um, the best food that we love. Like whether it's the Chinese food that we bring um, to like every single potluck or poke or uh, plate lunches, like in Hawaii, they're very, very passionate about the places that my family has been going to for generations. Like 
I still go to the same plate lunch places that my grandparents like went to probably when they were like around my age. Um, so we've had generations of uh, frequenting the same businesses. There, my grandfather was so devoted to certain cafes and restaurants that he would, um, he, he painted. Um, he was like, he was in the army and he worked at uh, Pearl Harbor for a long time. So most of my family is actually military on that side, but they're all very, very artistic um, and talented people. And my grandfather's uh, choice of art was oil painting. So he would give his favorite restaurants and cafes, his oil paintings uh, of old Hawaii. So if you walk into some places in Hawaii and you'll see um, artwork on the wall that my grandfather painted. So um, yeah, he was very, very supportive of, of small businesses and neighborhood establishments. On the Hong Kong side, uh, they're very much gourmets. They are people who raised me to appreciate Chinese banquets, many hours long, many, many courses long. And I think it was a pretty typical Chinese upbringing in, in terms of food and that like, you know, we eat abalone at the same time as like we're discovering chicken and just having like a very, very wide palette uh, from very early on. And I don't think I really appreciated it until I moved to the U.S. Like you, un until I moved to like the mainland U.S. I don't know much about Hawaiian food. What are some of the, the dishes that you ate growing up? Like you talk about going to these same places. What are some of the dishes that you'll, you get when you go there? Uh, Kula pig, lao lao, which is like the most perfect packet of food. That's cooked, wrapped in tea leaves, T-I. That's um, a plant, I think in English, it's like the cordyline here in the, in the, on the mainland is very ornamental, but in Hawaii, we use it to like wrap a lot of uh, different kinds of foods. Lao Lao is often stuffed with pork, um, sometimes with a little chunk of butterfish. I ate a lot of poke growing up, um, a lot of Japanese food, a lot of Okinawan food, stuff seasoned with soy sauce and sugar, a lot of rice, poi. Uh, lomi lomi salmon, which is now considered to be an ethnic Hawaiian food that is comprised entirely of introduced ingredients. Um, I can go on and on and on about Hawaii's food culture. It's multifaceted and the result of many different groups uh, moving to Hawaii uh, to work on its sugarcane plantations and cooking together, marrying together, uh, marrying each other and um, making plate lunches. So is it still kind of evolving or is it kind of settled in at this point to the cuisine that it is? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, so Hawaii, like, I feel like it's the food scene has evolved more than any other one that I have had intimate knowledge of. Like when I was growing up there, like we didn't have a lot of good Vietnamese food and now there's, there's lots of it, lots of great Thai food. Newer immigrants to Hawaii. Um, so there, there's been a really huge Filipino immigration to Hawaii. Um, there was like initial Filipino immigration, like hundred years, 150 years ago. And so, uh, and then like a much newer wave that brought, um, a lot of more interesting and better Filipino food, um, than I ever grew up with. Like when I was a kid, like you could get pancit and you could get chicken adobo and maybe dinaguan or lechon. And that was about it. And now there's just like so many more options or so much more Filipino food. Um, there's also like a lot more um, Polynesian options like outside of Hawaiian food. But there's something that I find really special about Hawaii is that like if people from Hawaii decide that something's delicious, uh, they make it their own. 
without question. Um, it's a very, very inclusive sort of food mentality, I guess. Right now, um, Mexican birria is like all the rage. Really? Mm-hmm. Now, are they doing that pretty like traditional as we would think of it? Or do they kind of put their own spins on? Like, have you seen any interesting like Hawaiian twists to that? Um, yes. I can't remember exactly what they are offhand. Uh, when I go back to Hawaii, I I have to eat my favorite foods first. Um, so during that time, I, I, I'm like going for the greatest hits of my childhood. I had, didn't really get a chance to try anything new. So like I follow things on Instagram and typically I go back for like two weeks at a time and I can start trying the new stuff in the second week of being there. But being only there one week, um, I didn't have a whole lot of, um, opportunities, especially like Christmas, a lot of stuff's closed. I think that's how we all are when we travel. I mean, the same, like I grew up in New England and I don't get there that often. And we were up there this summer. And as much as I wanted to try all these new places, like I just wanted to go to like my favorite pizza place. Like pizza isn't anything inventive, but it's like, this is my favorite place. And I don't like nobody makes it like that. So we hit up all those places that I went to growing up. Um, How did you get into cooking? Let's kind of, I would love to hear about that. Bring us up to speed. So you didn't go to school for cooking. You eventually ended up having a restaurant, a food truck, and a food business. So connect those dots for me. Um, yeah, all of this stuff, everything that Poidog became, it grew slowly and incrementally. Um, I left grad school. I was pretty fed up. So 2008, financial crisis um, obviously affected many, many people. Um, Trickle-down effect to lead to like budget cuts in humanities departments, um, in colleges, which of course affected me because I was in a humanities department in a college. So I knew that uh, my job prospects were dwindling and I spent two years at Bryn Mawr that were like, like Bryn Mawr was, was good to me. And I, um, did some like really extraordinary things like in those two years there, such as spend like three months in Greece at the American school of classical studies at Athens. Uh, visiting digs and just like going all over Greece. So that felt like the best thing that I was going to do in academia. Like it felt like I had reached the pinnacle uh, of what I hoped to achieve. And I had achieved some other things as well that like I was very proud of, like publishing an academic article that I'm still extremely proud of. Like I feel like it was a good chunk of my life's work, but I accomplished these things and I thought that was enough for that field. Um, and I was really homesick. I missed Hawaiian food. Um, I missed Hawaii's local food and happened to be working in a restaurant. And the garde manger of that restaurant happened to have a food truck that he happened to be selling. Um, and I bought it. And it was like Hawaii's food is it's not that difficult to make if you're just sticking to like spam musubis and kalua pig and like I'd been making that stuff to like scratch the itch of homesickness for a while so it was just like a matter of like scaling up and learning how to make that for a lot more people um, and then opening the restaurant adding more dishes getting better at making other food and managing a staff and it was like one step at a time it wasn't like we ever took like huge leaps so yeah. Now I make sauces. So you started with the food truck before you had the restaurant, right? Yeah. The food truck for four and a half years, then opened a restaurant, uh, kept the food truck, uh, mostly did weddings, catering, um, like really big events. Like um, when Forbes, like 30 under 30 um, was in Philly, we catered for them. Stuff that like 
5,000 people show up to. That's no joke. Like, yeah. le- so like without having that uh, real culinary background, like, was it a quick fit for you? Or was there like a transition time of like, oh, wow, uh, this is a lot like cooking for that many people. Like, how did you find that going from not really coming from a background of like super high volume cooking to now cooking for, say, 5,000 people? I mean, it definitely wasn't easy. It like it was physically extremely demanding um, and my health suffered a lot for it. And it's not something, it's not like time and place in my life that I ever want to go back to. Like it was really, what I mean, what happened was people would give us these jobs and then we would just rise to the occasion and learn as we go. Um, and the jobs just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It was really tough. We figured it out and made a lot of lists. I make, I'm a very much a spreadsheet person now. I'm very much a planner, but I'm very glad that I don't have to plan um, the food for 5,000 people anymore. I don't recommend it. It takes a certain personality and a certain amount of energy uh, that I don't want to give anymore. So why did you decide to start a restaurant? Like if the food truck was already a lot there, what were you trying to accomplish by opening a restaurant? Were you going to be doing different dishes or just have a different vibe? Uh, yes. So start a restaurant because if you have a food truck and you're mostly catering, everybody wants to get married on a Saturday in June. So the restaurant allowed us to have like a real staff. So the food truck was really tiny. It was uh, four by eight feet on the outside, which meant it was like two by three feet on the inside. So we only ever had like one employee at a time. And with the restaurant, like the restaurant could be pumping out food. We could be running the truck. There was just like a lot more opportunity for growth. Now, if you had to choose, did you did you enjoy one more than the other? I know it might be like picking a favorite child. I like them for different reasons. Um, when I was the one working the food truck, I liked to be the only person in the food truck because it was an entire kitchen that like I could reach like an octopus. I know nobody can see me right now, but I'm like waving my arms like an octopus. I could like even I had like the grill within reach, the fire within reach, like it challenges every single part of your body and to be able to do that and like push food out. Like it just, it feels really, really good. And when people come to the food truck, everybody's happy. Like nobody ever complains when they're getting food from a food truck, maybe on very, very like rare occasions. Um, like if the person is like grumpy to begin with, they're going to be grumpy when they get food from a food truck. But like nobody, nobody really tells you this, that like the customers at food trucks are going to be really, really nice. The customers at restaurants there's like a learning curve for the customers to get to know you and manage their expectations with what you're serving, especially if it's an unfamiliar cuisine to them. I'm very happy to report that with the restaurant, we did end up winning a lot of customers over, but with the food truck, like you don't have to win any, anybody over. They're just like, so delighted, like with, with the fact that you exist and they have stumbled upon you and they're getting food from you, even though they waited in line for three hours. With restaurants, it's like people are very unwilling to wait at restaurants, but with food trucks, for whatever reason, they're happy to get in line and like wait there for two hours. Like, I'm not, I don't understand that. Like, I, because I see both sides of it. Like, I would not go and wait at a food truck for two hours. I don't care what they're serving. People are just a lot more impatient when they walk into a restaurant and they have just, they have different expectations. They have more things to think about. They have, tables to sit down at that have to be you know comfy and clean and managed at a at a food truck you know they're standing as they're eating and there's nothing to complain about 
with the restaurant, the thing I missed most is uh, working alongside and managing a very, very competent um, and kind staff. That, of course, is not something that I did at the food truck because we did not have much of a team when it came to running the food truck. It was just it was at most three people on the truck there. Even though it was really, really tough to sum up, I miss the physicality of cooking on the food truck um, and I miss the camaraderie of working in the restaurant. Were you the only one doing this kind of food in the area? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had a partner in Poor Dog. We had already closed everything um, and separated and gone our, our different ways before I started the sauce company. Like we had said goodbye to the making of the food. Um, the sauces came significantly later. I guess we can jump into that. Your restaurant closed. Now, was that solely due to COVID? Yeah, because um, we were a restaurant that made all of our money, or a business rather, that made all of our money on catering. Um, the restaurant itself broke even, and it broke even by um, but being the seats at lunch, line at the door at lunch, constant pan catering for the businesses around us, like the law firms and banks and so on and so forth. So we couldn't afford to lose money on the restaurant, um, and we couldn't afford to not do catering. Like Catering is the only money that we made, really. And in March, all the events were canceled. So I handed back thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of deposits that we had taken through basically 2021. And we knew then that things were dire. And when rest, when events weren't reinstated or rescheduled, we knew pretty soon that we it was not financially viable. So I'm all about like, you know, promoting my cultures and cooking and um, sharing my food with everybody. And I'm also like very practical. Like I, I know that a business has to be financially viable to exist. Um, and I knew very, very early on that it was not going to be financially viable for the near future. Well, the interesting thing there is you talk about how without the catering, it wouldn't be financially viable, but there's so many restaurants out there that don't even really do that much catering. I mean, I think that speaks a lot to the state of the restaurant industry. Like how many people are out there running restaurants that just, it's not a good financial decision? And when do you know to throw in the towel, even without a pandemic, right? Yeah. I mean, I can imagine, like, if you're stuck to a certain concept that doesn't allow for catering, I can definitely see that. Um, I mean, if you serve alcohol and you're making money on alcohol, then, like, why bother? And why bother, like, sending people to, like, deliver? Like, delivery is a whole another <laughs> bag of worms. But, um, yeah, I mean, so for some places, catering is not the answer. And for some, it is. And for us, like it was built into our business model. And it was it was really, really necessary um, and lucrative for us. And without that, we could not exist. And I know, I guess the word of the past two years was pivot, but uh, that is what you seemingly did. So now you have a line of Poidog condiments. You, when did you start that? When did you know that you were going to go and start co-packing a line of products? Um, so we closed the restaurant in July and on um, the first few batches I made myself and then found a co found two co-packers eventually. And now I'm never going back. Like it's so such a dream working with these two co-manufacturers. I hope to develop more products down the line working on it. And I really wish I had started the sauces when I had the restaurant because I thought I was pretty good at finding alternate streams of income, um, such as with catering and merch and typical things. 
Um, but the sauces would have been amazing if I had had a staff. It would just have been so much more efficient. And with people like constantly coming in the door and buying whatever the hell we had, because it was good. I, I really, I really wish I had started the sauce thing earlier. That is, that is my only regret. Now, were these all ones that you were using at the time in the restaurant or did you tinker with them and kind of redevelop them after the restaurant closed? So they taste the same, but they're completely different. Like to, to create a manufacturing formula for a CPG product is very, very different from coming up with a recipe that you're going to serve to somebody immediately. Um, a recipe that of a for a dish or sauce that you're going to make immediately, like it's not broken down into percentages. You can taste along the way. You can tweak things. Um, if you come up with a formula for something that's going to go into a bottle that's shelf stable, it has to be exactly the same all the time uh, with no variance. And it has to be sent off to a lab and tested for various things, depending on what it is. And back in 2013, well, the chicken was a chicken katsu with a guava katsu sauce. So a panko breaded chicken, um, breast served with rice, macaroni salad, and with a homemade sauce. Um, and this sauce was a pretty typical katsu made with uh, Worcester sauce, chicken broth, soy sauce, and our innovative addition of guava, which to me is perfection. And that was like the sauce that we served on the truck and every now and then in the restaurant. Um, that was really like a truck dish. But the one that goes into the bottle, uh, I work with a for that particular um, co-manufacturer, like, only processes uh, vegan ingredients. So I had to like completely retool the sauce. I had to mimic the flavor of fish sauce of the Worcester sauce with uh, white miso and mushroom powder. Uh, so the guava, so the guava katsu is completely vegan. The original recipe was very much not. So you say you can't taste the differences, like it tastes the same, or I mean, you can probably taste the difference. Oh my gosh. No, it's no? spot on. Really? Yeah, it is spot on. It's, I'm so happy with it. How did you figure that out? Like how much uh, playing did it take to realize that like the miso and the mushroom were going to be the trick? Like, did you try a bunch of different things first? Um, my brain was kind of going down the vegan route. Hawaii has a very, very rich food culture that is very, very pork and fish heavy. So that makes a lot of the food that I love inaccessible to um, people who don't eat pork or fish. And I want to make the flavors that I love more accessible. So I was already in like the vegan frame of mind. I'm not vegan. I just like vegetables. And I, I feel like people should eat more plant-based things. One of my closest friends is vegan. So I want like during pandemic, we were doing a lot of like food trades and I wanted to make sure that she could try stuff that I made. Um, I also was a chef in residence uh, for Sakara, which is a vegan meal kit delivery program that I did for a while as, like, as a customer and I was a huge fan of. Um, and then they hired me to uh, write some recipes for them. Um, so I was very much like cooking vegan. And this just like fell into that um, sort of framework. I love vegan food. And it's it's nice because it seems like every time like I'm a personal chef and every dinner I do, there's almost always someone who's vegetarian or vegan. And it just makes it so much easier when everything's kind of like coming from a vegan base. And then you can add meat to those who eat it. But it's so mm -hmm. much harder to take it out. I mean, I find so many of the condiments that I love. Like I love Worcestershire sauce and like it's got fish in it and it's not vegan. Yeah. And, the, and the vegan one isn't quite the same. There, There is a difference in that from like the original guava katsu. Um, this one really glazes 
very, very beautifully. Um, it makes a wonderful caramel sort of crust for meats. I didn't, there's no added sugar to it other than like the guava, which is inherently sugary, but it's just, it's so, so good when you're using it to barbecue anything on the grill. So definitely like try it, like brush it over whatever you're barbecuing, like definitely try it that way. Well, I do love pork. So like brushing some of that on some pork and throwing it out on the grill. I I think that's something I'm going to have to try. Yes. You mentioned chef in residence for the meal kit, but you were also recently chef in residence with Jose Garces for his new program. How was that experience? Oh my God. It was so cool. Um, So I mentioned that I missed the camaraderie of working in a kitchen and I'm seeing people execute dishes really, really well. Um, So I scratched that itch for about two months uh, with Jose Garces' team at Volver. And everybody who works in that kitchen is like at the top of their game. They're so talented. They're so hardworking. And they're so consistent. Like they're so good at what they do. And it was just like mind boggling to see them um, push out that much food. The way that the residences uh, residencies broke down was they change according to uh, what is on show at the Kimmel Center. And uh, mine was especially long and especially busy because uh, it was concurrent with Hamilton. Um, so it was really, it was really wild to see the, that kitchen work and put out my food like consistently every single time was such a pleasure. What was the training process like that? Um, I'm interested in these residence programs. Like, did you send recipes ahead of time and the kitchen staff were kind of like reading them and training on them? How long did it take to bring them all up to speed on your stuff? I don't know if the other other chefs and residents are doing it the same way, but so basically the training process was essentially up to me. Um, so the way that I did things, and I think others are doing it differently, was I came up with a sort of like a master menu of many dishes. And I found out like what were their, like what suppliers they worked with, um, what was feasible for them to bring in um, and accessible. For example, like uh, Jose Garza's, um, well, the Garza's group now, um, which is separate from Jose Garza's, um, the Garza's group, um, they own Distrito. So I knew that there was a very, like very high chance that they were bringing in um, fresh masa um, and making tortillas from scratch and so on and so forth. So I, I built that into my master menu. Like I wanted, I wanted a tostada um, and I wanted a really good tostada. Um, so like I found out who their suppliers were, like what was feasible and um, went from there down that route for the ahi poke tostada. I also wanted to use my sauces on the menu and the sauces appear on almost every dish. Uh, and they also appeared on the bar menu. Um, so that was exceptionally amazing. Um, I did not come up with the cocktails. Uh, bar manager Tom Foy did, and he did an absolutely like genius job with them. And so like, basically like we shot some ideas around, but not a lot. Like, I had a pretty clear idea of like, I wanted what I wanted to serve. It just needed to match up with the Garces group suppliers and capabilities of the staff and the way that the kitchen was laid out. Um, so we settled on a few and then I broke those dishes down into very, very, very detailed spreadsheets, like broke it down so that each batch of luau, for example, was like measured down to the gram for every single ingredient. And then it was like on the portions were all measured out. Basically, I sent them like extremely, extremely detailed spreadsheets on every single dish and every single part of prep. And um, then they made it. 
then we then I went in and tasted everything before we opened to the public. Um, made some tweaks, and then we opened and uh, made some more tweaks. And then as we went along, like you know, I I was in there very very frequently in the beginning, troubleshooting and like Jose Garces himself was also there, like making suggestions until we were very, very happy with the final result of the dishes. Like I, the first week, like I, th- I thought the food was pretty good, but by the, the third week, like it was, I thought I was so proud of it. I was so happy with what they were putting out, but yeah, a few changes here and there. And I also supplied them with a lot of stuff from my garden. Um, sort of like the end of summer stuff. Like I made guava katsu specifically for them. That was using the tomatoes from my garden brought them shiso leaves and edible flowers like every week. It was, it was a really cool experience. I think it's such an interesting idea that, I don't know, I feel like we're maybe going to see more of these, you know, Dan Barber this past year did this chef in residence program. You've got this. I think it's a cool idea. I don't know if it's a trend that'll continue, but I hope so. I think it's especially like chefs without restaurants. I think it would be really cool for, you know, like I don't work in a restaurant, but I would go do, you know, a month or so somewhere. I think there's a lot of people who'd like to maybe go try that. So yeah, like I'm about all about it. Like I, I'm still really traumatized from closing the restaurant. So I'm like, yeah, I will take every residence that comes my way. Like that's financially viable. Sign me up, but I will probably not open another restaurant uh, for the foreseeable future. It's just too hard. Well, you work with a lot of brands also developing recipes, don't you? Yes, lots. I love a project. Just wrapped up one. That is not totally out. It's like partially out yet, out now. Um, the Norwegian Seafood Council uh, wrote a bunch of recipes for them, did a bunch of videos. I think one video has come out and I think I did four in total, teaching people how to skin fish and make it into tataki. Worked with cream cheese brands, a bunch of others. I know a lot of people in my community want to get into doing that and doing more. Do you have any advice? And also like, have you had any, you don't have to name businesses, but like, have you had any bad experiences? Because I think, you know, these things don't always go the way that you want them to. I think sometimes you enter into partnerships with brands and you think it's going to be a good fit and it's not. So I guess the two questions are like, has it always been amazing? And do you have any tips? Number one tip is start a website and put your recipe work out there. Have a page for whatever press you get. But yeah, have a centralized location. Um, with a form that people can fill out and get back to you if they're interested in you developing recipes for them. Just make it really, really, really easy for clients to find you and see what you can do. Like, I don't think I'm the best chef out there. I think I have a unique take on things. I'm not half bad as a writer and I have a lot of teaching experience. So yeah, if you need me to like make a video parsing things down, like I can do that for you. But the best thing that I have going for me is I make myself available and I respond to all the emails and all the messages. As soon as an opportunity comes my way, I am going to be very responsive. I haven't had a lot of bad experiences. Like I really haven't. Like sometimes it takes people a while to pay, which is annoying, but I also have a bookkeeper who will chase people up on me. I guess that's my other like secret weapon. The fact that I have a bookkeeper and like my recipe development work goes into the same place as my, like my sauce business. So I'm, um, I typically don't have to like chase people up for invoices because she will do it. And I know that's a big headache when it comes to people who work on a project basis or, um, or freelance, 
So yeah, I highly recommend getting a bookkeeper who will chase up invoices for you. It will take a lot of stress out of your life. Well, that's good advice. I mean, it's it's just interesting. I mean, there's so many more opportunities for chefs now, which I think is is wonderful, right? Like you don't just have to work in a restaurant to make money working in the food world. So um, yeah. navig- navigating this has been, I don't want to say challenging, but just different. I think a lot of us who came up through the culinary industry who didn't necessarily have like a business background or marketing or know how to do this or write contracts, kind of figuring out as we go. And then I wanted to touch on this crocheting project of yours, which I, I mean, I don't know if I should call it a project or hobby or what, but um, you've been doing some really cool stuff with crocheting. When did that start? Oh, pandemic. I was really bored. Yeah. I was locked down. <laughs> Super bored. Had you ever done it before? So I'm, I I only learned how to crochet a couple of years ago. Um, not that long before pandemic. My best friend Mel taught me and um, I made a lot of dog sweaters. Like for a while, I was the girl who made all the chef's dog's sweaters like I've made sweaters for like half the chefs in Philly for the dogs the ones who have dogs I don't crochet like a normal person like I can't read a pattern I don't know a whole bunch of different fancy stitches like I make everything up along the way so when I crocheted for chef's dogs um, I would need to have like the dog in front of me like I need to touch the dog pet the dog sometimes maybe even like stitch around the dog um, because that's just like how my brain works um, in order to make things 3d uh, but you can't really do that when um, you aren't seeing your friends or their dogs. So I got super bored. And one day I was just like, I was like looking at an object and I was like, I wonder if I can make this out of yarn. And then it just never stopped. And now it's a display in the Philadelphia airport. Yes, it is on exhibition for the next six months um, until June 2022 in Terminal B. But so for our listeners who haven't seen these before, they're based around what, like, what do you say? Culinary advertising type stuff. Is that a way to describe some of it? Oh yeah. So this is like a strange thing that happened with, along with the recipe development work for brands. Okay. So I started crocheting the stuff that I miss or like my favorite groceries, like strawberry Pocky. And also things that like hold a lot of nostalgia for my husband, Ari, like Bamba and uh, peanut chews, like something that you look at and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it's made out of yarn. That's so cool. <laughs> and um, that reminds me of my childhood. Yay, delicious. Um, so I started doing that and then um, brands started reaching out to me. Uh, so I, I've crocheted like quite a few um, packaging for brands now as well. Like they'll be like, hey, write us a recipe. Also, can you crochet our product? Or they're like, okay, they're like, all right, we'll cook here. We'll send you a bunch of product, do whatever the hell you want with it, but please crochet it. Um, and now, like, I have a more systematized way of um, executing those orders, but they're a lot of fun and they're pretty challenging. I just did a couple crocheted boxes of, of bone broth for Kettle and Fire, and that was so hard. It was it was crocheting like round things that have like many ridges is so hard, but it was so satisfying. So yeah, I, I, I will also, if you're a brand, I'll also crochet your packaging. That's really amazing. I mean, that's like so outside the realm of anything I know how to do. My mom used to knit and it was the same thing. She would make sweaters like I was a big uh, New York Mets fan and she did their logo, but she had to like kind of freestyle it herself, like the whole like New York skyline and all that. And it's not like that. My brain doesn't work like that at all. Yeah. I mean, my brain only works at freestyling. I can't I can't read a pattern. Like I, I, I look at people who like get this piece of paper and tell you how many stitches to make um, for each each row. and my brain can't do that. 
I can only I can only freestyle. Well, do you have any new projects in the works, like anything you're working on besides kind of um, keeping up with the sauces and all that, and then the recipe development? There's a new sauce that I want to develop this year. So maybe, I mean, I guess that's kind of a goal. Like I, I'm not going to tell you what it is because I uh, would need you to sign an NDA. <laughs> so working on new sauces. Working on a new sauce. But yeah, I'm teaching at Drexel. I still also teach at Penn Museum um, in their international cl- classroom, um, mostly about Hawaiian food culture and sugarcane plantation history. Um, but I'm teaching at Drexel. I'm teaching the geography of tourism. Um, this coming semester. And I'm really, really looking forward to that. I know it sounds a little bit strange to be like, oh, I'm choosing to hospitality theory. Like that is probably one of the most boring things that like sentences I've ever uttered. But yeah, teaching hospitality theory, geography of tourism, bringing in a lot of really interesting guest speakers from all over the world. Uh, people who own um, tour companies, people who work in corporate travel. My sister's boyfriend happens to be a health inspector on a cruise ship for Norwegian Cruise Lines, dragging him in to, to speak. Yeah, I, I, I feel like I put together a syllabus that I would like to sit in on. So, Well, that sounds fun. I would like to take that class. When I was in college, I went to culinary school. We didn't get to pick a single class. Like from when you go in as a freshman, they give you every single class that you're going to take till you're a senior with no electives at all. And Oh my gosh, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. But you know, I've continued my education as I get older. That's why I take classes. Uh, I'll just go to do a one-off on something that's interesting. One of the things I also like to ask is, do you have any favorite resources? And it doesn't have to be like super technical, but it could be like a cookbook, a website, an app. What are some of the things that you love that help you function? Um, as a writer, I love the Upcycled Food Association. They bring in like a lot of new brands. Um, they support a lot of like new brands that are trying to uh, turn food waste into something delicious and wonderful and good, both for people and for the planet. So yeah, that's a very obscure one if you want to go down that Never route. Never heard of it. There's a huge world of um, products out there that are trying to save um, food from going into the landfill. And so that's a really great resource. And I guess one of the last questions I like to ask is who are some of your favorite people who you think are under the radar? Like, I guess in the food world, are there chefs, business owners, food truckers, like who should more people know about? My friend, Angie, who is, who was the owner of Sachet Kampar, current owner of, uh, founder of Kampar Kitchen here in Philadelphia. She's an absolute ridiculously amazing resource on Southeast Asian cuisine. I've learned so much from her, just from being her friend, just from having her make me tasty food. She's great. And my husband, Ari, I feel like has, is kind of un- under the radar in some ways. I've learned a lot from him as well. Like, like he really is, just works with a lot of interesting farmers and foragers and forages on his own. And like, I've learned a lot about um, the edible plants in our region from him. And he's like a very, very curious mind. And we try not to talk about work at home or rather he talks about work at home and I tune it out, but outside, um, when we're going out to eat or going out, we're, we're traveling or like meeting up with farmers and foragers and fishermen. Yeah. He's a really, really great resource and a complete cooking nerd. Well, you got to give props to your husband and you just got married. Was it like a month or two ago? It was November 10th. Yeah, so you guys don't really talk food at home or work cooking at home? Um, he talks work at home and I tune him out. 
I don't like talking about work at home. I mean, I guess it's part of it's something you enjoy. Like, I love cooking. My wife used to be in the food world. She went to culinary school as well. But yeah, I can tell sometimes we're like, I'm going a little too deep on it. And it's like, okay, it's just dinner tonight. Like, this doesn't have to be a big deal. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So he doesn't cook it. So it's different. Like we have like different kinds of like personal and professional separation. So he doesn't cook at home at all. Like I'm the home cook. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's at first I was annoyed about it and now I'm happy about it because the kitchen is mine. Um, he can't like, I don't know if it's like a dude thing or what, but he can't find anything in it. Like he'll be like, where's the grater? Where's the microplane? Like constantly. That's because my wife's always moving it in different places. I don't know if it's like that in your house, but like it was here, it was here yesterday and now it's in a different drawer. No, every object in my house has like a very intentional location. So it's mind boggling to me. He can't find things. You got to figure out that rhythm in the kitchen. But um, yeah, well, thanks so much for coming on the show. I've really enjoyed having you here. Thanks. This is a really great chat. Before we jump out of here, where can people find your sauces if they want to buy them? The easiest place uh, would be poidogphilly.com. That's P-O-I-D-O-G-philly.com. It's might be in a specialty grocer near you. If you're in Philadelphia, it's at almost every specialty grocer in the city. So it's really easy to find. Fantastic. I will send everyone your way. I'll put all that info in the show notes. Anything else you want to plug or leave us with before we get out of here? If you want to check out my writing and my recipe development, it's at kikiaranita.com, K-I-K-I-A-R-A-N-I-T-A.com. And there's a lot of it. I tried to read as many articles as I could before we jumped <laughs> on here today. It's, a, it's I know, I'm, I, yesterday I made some inroads at trying to organize it a little bit better, but I'm working on it. <laughs> I'm mostly writing. Well, thank you again. And to all of our listeners, thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. Go to chefswithoutrestaurants.org to find our Facebook group, mailing list, and chef database. The community's free to join. You'll get gig opportunities, advice on building and growing your business, and you'll never miss an episode of our podcast. Have a great week.